Welcome back to True Crime Chronicles South Africa, your favorite Mzansi true crime podcast. I feel like the past few episodes have all been about child murders. I don't know is it because South Africa has a higher child murder rate or is it because I am unknowingly choosing child related murder cases. <laughs> Calls for some research. Just a disclaimer, our case today contains some details about cannibalism, necrophilia and child murder. If you're sensitive to any of the previous mentioned, I advise you listen to one of the past episodes. So let's get things started. As usual, a quick update on my dad's case for those interested. So last episode I told everyone how my dad's murder was accidentally given bail and how it affected our lives because from the moment we found out that he was out and obviously he knew that my mom and sisters would be able to identify him and they would be testifying against him in court, things obviously got tense and chaotic. There was always this constant thought that one day I'd get a phone call telling me that they were attacked and I mean my whole family is in Tata, my mom and all my sisters so obviously I was constantly nervous and anxious. So a newspaper reporter who was covering the story at the time suggested that I write a letter to the Provincial Office of Community and Safety, the MEC, Wezewetikana to intervene and he promised the reporter that he would write back or call but obviously he did none of that. I didn't even expect him to. So a few months go by and when we can't even go through with the court proceedings with Gwanele Madlekeza because Tantakolo wasn't present since he was given bail by accident. So the case continues to drag and drag and drag and one of the most suspicious things was that when my mom was in court and she found out that the case will have to be postponed because Tarkola was given accidental bail, the detective who was supposed to be present at court wasn't. And when she tried calling him so he could help her understand exactly what was happening, his phone was off. That just seems very off to me. He didn't attend court then, he had his phone turned off then, he said he forgot he was supposed to be in court. That uh, that day, it just seems like a load of rubbish, honestly. So we got no response. We tr- had tried all possible avenues to get some sort of justice, not just from the accused now, but also the name of um, the name of the judge who had given Tantola bail. Because like I just feel like... If he was or wasn't bribed, it doesn't matter. He needs to be brought forward and dealt with. Judges can't just go around giving bail by accident. It's a very serious job. And, you know, you expect them to actually take their job seriously. It's just ridiculous. His so-called mistake could have cost us our lives. And I'm really disappointed that up to date, we have heard nothing about who the judge was that allowed him to go on bail in the first place or if he even faced any consequences for what he's done. South Africa is beautiful and all but the corruption is going to rot what we have left of our country and that's just my opinion. So let's get back to our case. So Stuart was born in Boxburg at around six months old. He was found with his older sister who was two years at the time by a domestic worker in a phone booth. The domestic worker then took the children to her employer who was known as Dup and then um, Dup decided to keep the children. He cared for the children for a total of a year and a half but by then the neighbours Mr and Mrs Falcon noticed that Stuart was undernourished and was infested with lice. The couple then decided to adopt the baby 
and that's when they found out the abuse Jibut had endured while staying with Jup. So just a side note, um, we all know how children are like sponges, you know, whatever you do to them eventually affects them in their adulthood and they don't even forget these things. Sometimes they just remember it subconsciously. So Dup was not the nicest of people and probably contributed to monster that um, Stuart would eventually become. Dup was very abusive towards Stuart and his sister. He would feed Stuart with the dogs and Dup was known to commit acts of bestiality with the dogs. Dup also molested Stuart. He burned Stuart with cigarettes. It was just all horrible and Stuart was so young, barely a toddler. This lasted for a total of a year and a half and during this time his sister disappeared. Stuart was now in a better home environment but obviously there was some trauma from his past. Even if he was just a baby, being subjected to those conditions would mess anyone up. It does not seem like Mr. and Mrs. Falcon took Stuart to a psychologist or anything which probably confused and maybe even frustrated the boy since he didn't even really understand or come to terms with his abuse. I have no idea if Dup even got arrested for what he had done. So a few years go by and Vulcan is struggling at school. He also had some social problems which can be expected from a child who experienced such a terrible early childhood. Vulcan fails the third grade a few times and this causes his classmates to tease him. Children can be very harsh and even cruel. I think the younger they are, the more prone they are to emotionally scarring each other since they don't really understand the abuse that words can inflict. They also know that Stuart is adopted so they tease him about that too. His class teacher didn't do anything about it or didn't really try to intervene. I think also back then mental health was not such a concern as it currently is, so she probably didn't even know any better. But I think she could have at least taken him to see the school council or something, maybe even just like tell the children to stop. But according to Stuart, his teacher would sometimes instigate the bullying. This would obviously make anyone resent their teacher. Stuart acted on his resentment for his teacher by attacking her. Stuart was punished by the principal by physically punishing him in front of all the other students. Trauma on trauma. This child's whole like, childhood is just a recipe for disaster. Growing up, Stuart's mother treated him like most other children would in that era. She used to punish him by locking him in his room, he would lose his temper and he would knock furniture over and then she would lock him in the cupboard for this um, since there's no furniture knock, to knock over in the cupboard, I guess. Still, this cupboard thing doesn't sit well with me. It seems um, low-key abusive. He would bite his mom and other children. But I mean, I have been bitten by quite a number of children. So I don't know if it's serial killer vibes. I think it's more of just like a behavioral issue. So one day, Stuart gets into trouble for fighting. He goes home and he tells his mother that he was defending himself and that the other boy attacked him first. Like most parents during that era, Miss Wilkin doesn't take his side and instead punishes him, probably by locking him in the room. Stuart then tells him himself, he only has himself, he will be his own mother, father, brother, sister and auntie. And by this time, he's only 8, so I mean a normal 8 year old would have forgotten about that by the time he was served dinner, but Stuart meant what he said. After this incident, he started smoking weed. 
When Stuart turned nine, his adopted father died, and during that same year, he met a deacon who invited him to their house. Stuart's mother was probably happy that a man of God was inviting her son to their home. She probably thought he was going to become friends with the deacon, and who knows, maybe want to become a pastor or priest. But as history has proven, priests and deacons have a thing for little boys. So instead of helping Stuart, this deacon was basically putting the last nail in the coffin. He molested Stuart. This ordeal made Stuart an even more difficult child and his mother was now required to raise him alone since her husband was dead and, not, and she was just not able to cope. She then sent him to a reformatory which is basically like a juvenile prison. Punishment at this detention centre was being locked up without clothes and Stuart claims that some of the older boys would sexually assault him. He was very unhappy here and tried many, many times to run away, but his mother would just keep sending him back. Eventually, he completed grade 11 and enlisted in the army. He didn't last here because he tried to commit suicide. He then moved back in with his mother in a small town near Gabeja. One day, he's in a nightclub and woe well and behold, he meets Lynn. And soon, the couple get married and have a baby they name Juan. The relationship doesn't last long after the baby is born. Lynn said Stuart was abusive and eventually Lynn had Stuart arrested for smoking weed and the marriage ended. Stuart had decided to stay with a woman and her son, Henry Baker and Ellen. He had stayed with them for a while before he met his second wife. Now Stuart decided that he would never sleep with another white woman. Apparently he feared that it might be his sister, because remember his sister was still missing. Maybe it was his way of keeping faith that she was somewhere alive, but honestly considering Dip's behavior, I wouldn't be surprised if she was maybe sold into child slavery, child prostitution, or maybe even fed to the dogs, who knows. Something is just messed up. Some time passes and Stuart now marries a colored woman by the name of Veronica. Veronica had two boys by the time she met Stuart and the couple eventually had two girls of their own. It seems as though Stuart, Veronica and their children stayed with Veronica's parents. It isn't long before Veronica's parents start suspecting that Stuart is molesting the two boys. They then chase him out of the house. With no place to go, Stuart then starts living in bushes near Happy Valley. When asked why he stayed there, he said it was because he had many happy childhood memories of playing there, which is kind of sad. Going back to the time when Stuart was married to Lynn in February of 1990, he met a street child who he admitted to raping and then strangulating. In the same year, um, October 1990, he had a fight with Lynn and he left the house and met a prostitute by the name of Virginia Heisman. He took her to Dachbrig Primary School. He had sex with her, but she started to protest and he took a shirt and began to strangle her with it and he left her body in the schoolyard. Then again, in January 1991, he met Marcia Papenfuss at a hotel. He then took her to George's Park, but Marcia asked that he pay her before they have sex because Marcia was a prostitute. Stuart refused and became angry at her, so he sodomized her, strangled her, then left her body in the park. During the same year in October, he did the same thing to a street boy. You can see the pattern here. It's prostitutes and street boys. Some people have called Stuart a bisexual, 
But I don't think that his sexuality had anything to do with these crimes because he didn't really, he wasn't really sexually attracted to men. He was sexually attracted to little boys, which is very different. And I think he just found pleasure in hurting these little boys in the same way he was hurt. Stewart continues his murderous spree. In 1993, it was another street child raped and strangled. In July of 1995, another prostitute, Georgia Bonisiwa, was attacked by Stewart. He sodomized, then stabbed her with a knife and also cut and ate her nipples. Like, what the actual? Oh my soul, this guy, right? In September of 1995, he went to visit his daughter, Juan. And she apparently told him that her stepfather was abusive towards her. Stuart then took his daughter to Happy Valley, which is also the place where he slept. He then inspected her vagina and reached the conclusion that she was no longer a virgin and assumed that she was being molested by her stepfather. He then killed her to save her from the type of life he had. So much wrong in one sentence, right? He claimed he did a favor by sending her soul to God. He slept next to her body and apparently he spoke to it. He claims that when the body had decomposed, he took off the clothes and covered the remains with the top. He kept the clothes laid next to them every night. A weird white guy. May 1996, he attacked and strangled another prostitute, Katrina Clausen. Between May and of August 1996, he attacked another street child, sodomized and strangled him as well. So the year is currently 1997 and it's January. So sees someone he recognizes and lo and behold, it's Henry Baker. Remember the mom and kid he crashed by after his marital problems? So Henry was with his friend and he was on his way to buy some bread and milk for his parents. Stuart then goes to Henry, except Henry will never make it home again. Stuart took Henry to Algoa Park where he molested and eventually strangled Henry. Henry's mom did not report this disappearance until two days after. Ellen, who is the mom, said that Henry often went to stay by his granny's place, which is a short walking distance away from hers, so she had assumed he would be there. When the boy didn't return, she went to her mom's place to see if her son was alright, and that is when she found out that he was not by the granny, and she did not see him either. Henry's mom then reported the disappearance, and the sergeant who was on duty, or who was given the case, met with Henry's friend and told her that he last saw Henry with Booty Boot, which was the nickname Stuart had. When the police confronted Stuart, he put on a big show acting concerned as though he would do anything to help. The police asked him to give an alibi, and he obviously had none. He obviously had none. And when they followed up, they realized that he hasn't being totally honest, they arrested him and after some questioning, he admitted to the murder of his daughter and the murder of Henry. He told the police that he had killed at least 10 people. Stuart was sentenced to seven life terms imprisonment in 1998. I found an article online which was quite interesting. Stuart, or Butibur Falcon, fits the classic profile of a serial killer and will murder again when the opportunity arises, whether he is in prison or outside. This is what was said in evidence in the High Court um, by forensic psychologist Dr. Mickey Pistorius, who, regarded, who is regarded as the country's foremost expert on serial killers. 
Dr. Pistorius, who is attached to the SA Police Service in Pretoria, told Mr. Justice Chris Janssen that the rehabilitation process of serial killers are null. Called by the defense, Dr. Pistorius, who had seen Mr. Vulcan's statement in which he confesses to 10 murders and 5 counts of sodomy, said one of the several phrases that serial killers go through during their development as multiple killers was raw sexual aggression, during which the killer allowed himself to be guided by his fantasies. Triggered by stress-related factors, these fantasies normally lead to murder. Serial killers, she said, usually were lone wolves as children a lack of interpersonal relationships with their parents resulted in non-development of a conscious they demanded immediate satisfaction to their every whim they cannot express their fantasies and eventually embark on trial runs as to find out whether they would be capable of murder he had no control of himself under these circumstances he believes that his victim deserves to die and he cannot stop killing she said she said some serial killers seek help from psychologists, but even in these cases, the killer does not really want to give up the pleasure he derives from killing. They become addicted to the feeling of power and control, which killing gives them, Dr. Pistorius said. Serial killers who fitted Mr. Vulcan's profile can also not become sexually aroused unless they cause pain and suffering. Mr. Vulcan, she said, had been severely abused as a young child and had learned to be sadistic from an early age as a habit of biting his victims reveal. Mr. Vulcan describes in his statement how he had cut off and ate the nipples of one of his victims. Dr. Pistorius said the stress factors which triggered his need to kill could also be activated in prison. Anything petty can set him off. Personally, I think this is the worst type of serial killer since they have a mask of sanity. This analogy of what a serial killer is, is pretty similar to a series I'm watching on Showmax, Dexter. It is very fascinating and you should definitely check it out. I think I have mentioned this before, but the most difficult thing as a family is to grieve the loss of a family member whose life was cut short because of such heinous crimes. And it is important for us to remember the ones whose lives are forever altered by these gruesome crimes and the ones who have lost their lives. Our next episode, we take a look at a recent case which caused a media outrage and pushed politicians to talk about femicide. You probably already guessed it. So yes, we'll be talking about the Jeho Fatsopula case. Until then, don't forget to stay safe and be vigilant. Bye.